This is History West Midlands. In the 18th century, the industrial complex at Soho in Birmingham changed the face of manufacturing forever as Matthew Bolton and James Watt Sr. created the steam engines which powered the Industrial Revolution. Perhaps it is unsurprising that most of the academic and popular histories written about these developments focus on the heroic figures of Bolton and Watt themselves, or other lesser-known engineers such as William Murdoch. As a result, very little is known about the more than 600 men, women and even children who were employed in the foundry, mint and manufactory at Soho. These were the workers who actually made the products, including the engines, which were renowned throughout the world. Now a team from the University of Birmingham has initiated an ongoing project to unravel the stories of these forgotten players, their lives, their working conditions and their relationships with their employers. The publisher of History West Midlands, Mike Gibbs, talks with some of the researchers about their initial discoveries. We're here at the Rodney Hilton Library at the University of Birmingham and I'm delighted that I'm joined by Dr Malcolm Dick, the director of the Centre of West Midlands History, by two of his researchers, Christopher Olive and Caitlin Russell. They have been conducting research into the workforce at Soho, the people who actually worked on the shop floor for Bolton and Watt, figures who are often ignored in history when we concentrate on the big names only. Caitlin, can you tell us what was your particular area of interest? I looked at the women and children workers in the three Soho sites, the manufactory, the mint and the foundry. I looked at women in the manufactory, boys in the mint and teenage boys in the foundry as apprentices. Christopher, what did you explore? Beginning with the Smethwick engine, I wanted to identify and research some of the histories of the earliest workers on the Bolton and Watt engine business. Two of these that I identified were James Law, who did work on the Smethwick engine, and Logan Henderson, who did not, but was also one of their earliest employees. I also researched Watt's first assistant in the engine business and later statistician William Playfair. And the scope of my research almost entirely uh, originates in the correspondence in the Library of Birmingham archives to or from or about these workers' affairs. Malcolm, what makes the Soho manufactory, this Soho complex, distinctive in terms of the development of modern industrial practice? It's distinctive in that it was an important pioneering building for the division of labour and for bringing different aspects of production together in one unit. So for the Soho manufactory, you had a frontage that was very attractive, a Palladian mansion. But behind that, there are a whole series of workshops where different trades took place, where work was performed by skilled and unskilled men, women and children. The manufacture of the steam engine required new skills and new thinking. How was that reflected in the labour force? 
Matthew Bolton and James Watt, when they met, got on very well together. James Watt had already developed his bumping steam engine, an efficient engine, in Scotland. The problem was the skills of the workers in Scotland were not sufficient for developing that steam engine. And to cut a long story short, Bolton promised that he could help to manufacture Watt's engine. And certainly there was a concentration of skilled metal workers, not just at the Soho Manufactory, but in Birmingham in general. There were people who were used to intricate metalwork and there were people who were used to manufacturing tools. But in essence, the key reason there was a concentration of workers in Birmingham who were used to a variety of metal manufacturing skills and who were also flexible. And the Soho Manufactory provided that and probably nowhere else in the United Kingdom could have provided that. Christopher, we have a totally new piece of technology which has to be mass-produced to high tolerances, but there's a shortage of skilled workers that can support Bolton and Watt in this enterprise. From your research, what did you learn about how they went about recruiting these individuals and where did they find them? There was a range of ways in which they um, recruited a lot of the employees. A lot of the time it was on a recommendation basis, either from important figures within Bolton and Watts' social circle or from other engineers, such as Henderson. So there's examples of him routinely recommending people who've been in attendance at the engine work to what as potential employees, such as a shoemaker at the Richmond Engine and men of great mathematical skill and this, that and the other. Henderson originally wrote into Bolton discussing some proposals for an engine for a sugar plantation where he previously worked in Dominica. Um, and that's how he received a job offer through his interest there. So it was not any one set way of recruiting people. One thing that Bolton was extremely good at doing was advertising his workplace and advertising his products and the quality of his workforce. And that in itself encouraged people to move to the area and gain employment. There are opportunities there and workers were well paid. And Christopher's absolutely right. There are a variety of ways in which people were recruited, but Bolton knew he was short of workers, but advertising what he did enabled him to pull people in. So, Christopher, overall, how successful were Bolton and Watt in this recruiting drive based on this publicity? Well, I don't think there was necessarily so much of a problem with recruitment as there was uh, with retainment of the employees. There were a lot of very intelligent men who did receive impressive recommendations and particularly ones who came from wealthier backgrounds like Henderson and Playfair, who actually didn't seem particularly suited to the roles that they were carrying out. Henderson came under a lot of fire for being actually a bad engineer and a lot of people refused to take him on after he took the heating case off of an induction pipe at the Richmond engine and left it dry. And it was in such a state of disrepair that they actually refused to pay him for it. And Playfair was also not a particularly good assistant or writer and he was originally dismissed in 1778, but after his replacement, or supposed replacement, John Hall, 
um, was caught uh, stealing uh, some of the materials and using the Smiths' time that they were being employed by Watt to have them make a room full of models of some very nice machines. He was uh, dismissed and then Playfair had to be recalled and trained properly. So it was sort of a balancing act between the loyalty and the skills of the employees. And actually, indeed, they did retain that same John Hall in their service under some persuasion on Bolton's part because Watt didn't particularly like the idea of keeping him on but unfortunately they did have a shortage of men so they had to keep the more skilled ones even if he was a a known smuggler. In terms of Watt he has a bit of a reputation for being difficult to cope with. Was there friction between say Watt and the people he employed? I mean, there were a lot of disputes, not always necessarily between Watt and his employees. I've actually found a lot more evidence of Bolton particularly having financial disputes with a lot of his employees. One of the really interesting things that's come out of the research is illuminating a more compassionate and holistic attitude from Watt in his treatment of the workers. There were a lot of different disputes that went on, ranging from a sex scandal that involved Henderson and Playfair, among a lot of other men, where Anne Bolton had accused some of the men of being in relationships with women at the Soho Manufactory or of taking women away with them to their jobs on the engines. It was a lot of he said, she said, and uh, Henderson wrote this quite defensive letter to Watt about the whole affair. And Watt was particularly not dismissive as such, but he showed a very interesting compassion towards Henderson's situation and didn't particularly seem fussed by the whole affair. And there were a lot of petty squabbles as well over who worked more hours and who was most skilled. And quite a lot of the engineers were uh, particularly arrogant. So James Law was one of these people. He got himself in a lot of uh, these scrapes, as uh, Watt describes them. He actually writes of him being an honest fellow, but somewhat vain, and that he wouldn't be for humouring him unless he knew him to be a conscientious worker. He did receive quite a lot of praise for his work on the engine, so perhaps the vanity was warranted. But uh, he was particularly upset by certain people being allowed to do more work on the engines and was often accusing of a certain smith for only working four hours in the day and this sort of thing. We can actually know a lot from the way that Watt regarded Law, and he wrote to him very kindly, almost paternalistically, about the situation and uh, always reassuring him of his skill, even writing to the clients of the engines that he was working on, asking them to reassure him and tell Law what a good job he's doing and, oh, he'll only work ten times harder if you praise him a little bit more. That sort of reveals a different side to what to the one that we usually see him being quite keen to get rid of the workers who were drinking all the time and being dishonest and disloyal. So as long as you were a loyal and a conscientious worker, I think he did treat you with quite a good deal of respect. The issue was, really, were they actually doing work and could they sell the products? I think that would be the main consideration. And if a worker was good, they would want to keep them. If the worker was bad, they might still want to keep them because they might take their knowledge elsewhere. As I understand it, Bolton and Watt were famous or infamous for their paranoia about protecting their patents. Is that true? Yes, it's true, certainly up to a point. One of the problems with Bolton and Watt's patents, they often covered an enormous wide range of subjects. And I think it's the case with one of Watt's patents that it virtually prevented anyone else doing steam engine technological exploration because they wanted to maintain their monopoly. It didn't actually stop other 
engineers, other entrepreneurs, other inventors developing their steam technology. But they were often involved in court cases against other businessmen in order to defend their patent. One really interesting sort of example or case study that came out of this was when Henderson's relations soured with uh, Bolton and Watt, and Bolton in particular. He was involved in a financial dispute with Bolton after it was a shipwreck and all of his possessions were destroyed and he wasn't provided the proper compensation by his employers. So when he was a couple years later sent to a job in Ireland, which doesn't have the same patent laws upheld as with the English parliament, He was actually petitioning the Irish Parliament to give him payment for erecting the engine there because he was the one who had erected it and the patent laws didn't apply. And this led to quite a large dispute with Bolton and Watt. And Bolton in particular had a very dramatic reaction to this entire situation. He wrote of him as being most diabolical and shows his heart is fraught with every hatred and malice, with ingratitude, dishonour and everything that is base. And he sort of writes of uh, Duckett's and future income and correspondence as Henderson's menacing letter, constantly complains about his actions and, and worries about him conspiring against him in the future, and even codenames him Wasp. And there's one quote that I think is probably my favourite of the whole of the research that I've conducted, which is from Bolton, where he writes in 1784 to Watt, with anxiety of treachery and gossip spreading amongst his workers, urging Watt to guard the mouths of those who you consult, for I should be sorry that the Wasp, Wolf, Playfowl, Blair and Co, or any of their connections should know anything of your business. And this warning to Watt against conspirators is rather ominous. That is evidence of paranoia, if you like, to a great extent. But they feared people stealing their ideas and making money out of their ideas. And I think this fear wasn't unfounded. As I just said, it was something that did happen quite a lot. So there was reason to believe that people were conspiring against them. Caitlin, whilst this discussion was going on largely with the male employees, there were, as we heard earlier, a significant number of female employees and children who are working there. Can you describe what their roles were inside the manufactory? Yes, so women I looked at in the manufactory were burnishers, so that meant they were polishing metal, usually copper or silver products. These would be candlesticks, trays, that kind of thing. And these women, I only know about them because they had their own book called The Burnishing Book where they recorded the products that they were able to burnish each day, each week. And they wrote it in themselves. They had their own sections within the book. And this was an official document within the manufactory. And the clerks would read the book and write in a red ink handwriting, clarifying that, yes, they will be paid this amount. Congratulations on maintaining this pace. So that's what the women were doing in the manufactory. And there were children in both the mint and the foundry. So in the Mint, there were younger children. So a few of them were below the age of 11. And these children would be doing simple mundane tasks like packing boxes of coins to be then shipped off. Or even operating the Benkulin Mint Press, a specific press that is written about quite a lot within the Mint records. And then there were also the apprentices in the foundry. And these were where the majority of my research focused These boys would have been working and doing a few different tasks. They were allotted from the beginning and they carried on with that task throughout the duration of their apprenticeship 
And the most popular of these was the filing, fitting and turning of iron. And second most popular was moulding and casting of iron. So it was kind of really hands-on getting to grips with the metal and learning how to work it, which would have really provided them with the skills that they needed to carry on being members of the workforce after their apprenticeship ended. So we had two types of children. One were apprenticed and the others weren't. Yes. The apprentice children, presumably these were boys, were they? Yes. So these apprentice boys, how long was the apprenticeship for? So from the indentures and the records of their contracts, most of them started at the age of 14 and it would continue until they were 21 years old. And even if they joined at a later age, the apprenticeship would always cut off at the 21st birthday. They were very specific with the dates. You can like trace their birthdays from their baptism notes and see like the exact date that Bolton and Watt Jr. have said, yep, you're going to end your apprenticeship here. And did you have the impression that these apprenticeships were sought after? I don't know how much it was perceived as a, a good thing to do, but the family members who have signed these indentures for the apprentice boys often have some form of job either within the Soho sites or in some form of skilled craftsmanship around Birmingham. They were all mostly local boys from Smethwick or Hansworth. And so that kind of status of the parents and guardians suggests that perhaps they knew that they wanted their boys to get trained in this through the manufacturing and foundry. We have an almost Dickensian view of children in factories, that they were exploited, it's slave labour. Was that true of working for Bolton and Watt or not? The sources seem to suggest not. The apprentice boys especially were given fairly decent wages for the time. They began, for the most part, at six shillings per week per year and they would have a regular increase um, every year so that every boy who was finishing at 21 years old by the 1810s would be finishing with earning 12 or 13 shillings a week, which is quite a, would have got them quite far. And then, of course, there was this wonderful source called the Christmas Presents Lists, which is just a list of all the boys who were working in the foundry, compiled by clerks and then signed off and edited by James Watt Jr. and Matthew Robinson Bolton. And that would detail a little gift that these boys were given at Christmas to spend on books or clothes or to keep up in their savings. And I think this shows that Dickensian view of boys being exploited and forced to do really dangerous tasks doesn't apply to the Bolton and Watt enterprise. Malcolm, this is your impression as well. I would agree completely with Caitlin. Bolton and Watt, and we're talking about both the elder Bolton and Watt and Bolton Watt Jr., seem to have had reputations as being good employers. In fact, you could extend that by saying, well, they had to be good employers because they were engaged in producing high technology work. And hence, you can understand perfectly why the apprentices in the foundry, which is where the steam engine was eventually manufactured, which was the birthplace of mechanical engineering in the world, they needed people who would learn a trade and perform a very high-quality task and then go on to be skilled workers. The employers had to treat their employees well, otherwise their employees are going to leave or not work hard or sabotage what they were doing or steal secrets. 
So my impression is that in general terms, the employment conditions were good. It's worth remembering that this was before the advent of the steam-powered cotton factory, where people's work was determined by the rhythm of the machine. The Soho manufactory, it's most surprising to tell people that this was the case, was powered by water power. And most of the work there was done by hand-operated tools. So it depended upon the skill of the workforce. Looking at the research that you've done, Caitlin, what's your impression of what life was like at Soho for the workers, for the women and the children? Well, obviously, from the sources that I've looked at, they've mainly been clock produced. So we really have to be careful about saying that we can definitely know the experiences of these workers without hearing their voices. But I think, nevertheless, we can still get some important views on the paternal relationship, especially between James Watt Jr. and Matthew Robinson Bolton and the Apprentice Boys, and the rest of the workmen and the Apprentice Boys as well, because Apprentice Boys would be trained under a specific workman. Harrison was a really popular one. He shows up a lot in lists. And some of the Apprentice Boys would even live with those workmen. Um, and there's that, that relationship, that connection, almost like a kind of family in that they were looking out for these boys and training them and they clearly wanted the best for them. They weren't wanting them to not succeed. And as the Christmas presents show, they even treated them to little gifts and had that extra nice atmosphere that perhaps you wouldn't expect to see from looking through the kinds of sources. But I think there's definitely a paternal relationship going on between... Um, the bosses and the workers. And Christopher, between Bolton and Watt and these more highly skilled male workers that you studied, what's your impression of the relationship? Was it good, bad, indifferent? I think what the research shows is generally that we can take a less simplistic view of their relationship and the way that the worker and employee dynamic worked. I think very similarly to Caitlin, it did show a, a quite a paternalistic nature to their treatment. But also I think it highlights the importance of the worker themselves and their significance to the business. They really did make and shape Bolton and Watt. And when you consider the balancing act that they did have to perform between the loyalties of their workers and also their abilities, the need to retain them, the trouble that they had recruiting them, if they didn't treat these workers right, then they could, as we discussed, you know, go off and conspire against them. And it, it was very common, actually, even with a lot of the engineers who had particularly um, good relationships with Bolton and Watt, even like James Law and William Playfair, they would leave and often take with them a bunch of other men from the Soho foundry or manufactory and set up their own businesses. This was very common practice. So retaining employees at the time was a huge problem. And I think that only exemplifies the weight and the intrinsic value to the company which these workers had and that shaped their practices and attitudes towards them in that respect. So Malcolm how important are these new insights into Soho? These new insights show us that there is evidence available to make sense of men and women and children as workers at the Soho sites and workers doing different things. And workers, in many ways, having personalities and having relationships with their employers and with each other. I think the scope for 
expanding upon that, both Chris and Caitlin only had a couple of weeks to develop their research. We need to know more about women. We need to know more about children. We need to know not just about the engineers, but the other levels of workers. We need to know how they were trained, how they were incentivized, how long they worked, what happened to them after they left employment, their trajectories and how far working for Bolton what might have influenced their later lives. Such tasks are going to be difficult, but it's quite clear from what Caitlin and Chris have been doing that they've been able to interrogate the archives to find out things that other people haven't found out. So I think they both need to be congratulated in terms of the work that they did in a very short period of time. And my hope is that they and others will be able to build upon their activities. Christopher, Caitlin, thank you very much indeed for sharing this really fascinating insight into Soho, Bolton and Watt. It's been fascinating to hear your descriptions of these forgotten revolutionary players. Malcolm, as always, thank you because this was driven by you, masterminded by you, and we'll look forward to hearing about the next insights. Thank you, all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You can find out much more about the men, women and children who shaped the Industrial Revolution in the English Midlands and the world beyond on our website, www.historywm.com. Also, visit our unique resource, Revolutionary Players, at www.revolutionaryplayers.org.uk to gain open access to a wide range of digitised contemporary materials, including books, documents, images, maps and much more, which feature the well-known and less well-known figures of the age. <laughs>